Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. We are in this message series talking about how to love the, the challenging, the difficult people in our life, and that takes a lot of courage, and that's why we're calling this Courageous Love. I want you to, as we begin today, once again, maybe pick a challenging relationship, just bring it to mind. Uh, it could be someone in your family, maybe extended family, maybe someone you work with, someone um, that's a neighbor of yours. Uh, it could be someone you used to be married to, but just pick a, a difficult relationship. And let me ask you this question. As you think about this person, what would have to happen in order for that relationship to improve? If you were to put down a sentence that would describe, if this were to occur, I think it would be a turning point in this relationship. What, what would that be? How, how would you describe that? Now, obviously, I can't read your minds. I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm going to take a wild guess at the first two words that probably entered your mind. These two words, if they... And then you continued on. Now, I, I know this, or at least I can guess this for most of you, because they're the first two words that come to my mind when I'm dealing with the difficult people in my life. You know, if they would just do this, or if they would just stop doing that, or if they hadn't done this, or if they would begin being different. Now, honestly, we have a point when we start a sentence like that in a difficult relationship. Uh, you know, we were maybe going through our day or our life, doing just fine, and then they said something harsh, or they said something untrue, or they did something that really, really hurt. And if they hadn't done that, we'd be fine. We wouldn't be angry. We wouldn't be upset. We wouldn't have a problem in this relationship. And this is why we say things like, they make me so mad, or they're driving me crazy. Because it sure looks like that. It sure feels like that. But if that is true, then what that means is that they have all of the power in the relationship, and we're just along for the ride, attached to whatever they do or whatever they say. And this is what often happens in difficult relationships. Our day can suddenly turn, our emotions can suddenly shift based on something they do or something they don't do or say. And it sure feels like they're the ones that really need to change. If they treat us well, then, well, we would love them. And if they don't, well, then we're going to really struggle. And we may even begin to hate them. Jesus says something very interesting about this common approach that we all have in our relationships. This is what he says in Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said. What Jesus is saying is that if you just open your ears and listen to the conversations that everybody's having about their relationships, you will hear all kinds of conversations that are about loving those who love you and hating those who hate you. This is common. This is the normal approach to relationships. But I tell you, Jesus said, love your enemies. Now that sounds impossible. But Jesus does not command the impossible. The difficult, yes, but not the impossible. And what that means is that we do have the ability to choose a course of action that is independent from the way people treat us. That's a very powerful statement to realize and to adopt. How can we choose a course of action that's independent from the way people treat us, especially when they treat us poorly? Well, it requires a break in the relationship. Now, not a break from the relationship, but a break from our emotional attachments to whatever they do and whatever they say. The first recorded relationship conflict in the Bible ended in murder. Cain killed his brother Abel. 
And before that act of hatred, God says something very important to Cain and to everyone who's in relational conflict, even if it's not at the level that it was at with Cain and Abel. Here's what God says to Cain, Genesis 4, 6 through 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Why are you angry, God starts out? Why why is your face downcast? Now, the answer to those questions isn't recorded, so we don't really know what Cain might have said, but my guess is it was something that Abel said, something that Abel did, probably a look that Abel gave in response to the way God responded to their sacrifices. But the issue is not, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? So God doesn't even wait for the answer. He goes straight to the point. He goes straight to the central issue that's, that's going on right here. And the issue is this, Cain, are you going to do what is right or not? Sin wants to dominate you, Cain. It, it's, it's crouching at the door. It's, it's wanting to bust the door down and dominate you. But you don't have to let it. Sin may feel powerful. The emotions may feel overwhelming right now, but they're not more powerful than your ability to choose. What what God is saying is you can rule over it. You have the power. I've given you and every human being the power to rule themselves. Sin wants to dominate, but you don't have to. Now, this is not just a pep talk from God. This is a very important explanation about the power that God has given us, and the power that God has not given us. It's a very important explanation about this. So I want to use a couple of circles to illustrate what God is describing here. And uh, we've put these circles on the back of your message insert. So if you want to fill in some of the words we're going to use, you can turn your message insert to the back and um, fill it in as we go through these words. But inside this first circle is everything that we are responsible for. So we'll call this the circle of responsibility. And in that circle is one person, you. And inside my circle is me. God is telling Cain and all of us that the only thing that we have the power to rule over is ourselves. Sin wants to dominate. We have all kinds of emotions, but we have the ability to choose. We can rule over ourselves. We can choose to do what is right in the eyes of God. And so the the key issue in this circle of responsibility is whether or not we're going to obey. Will we do what is right before God? It's the circle of responsibility. The key question is obedience. Will we obey or will we not obey? No matter what's going on around us, we have the power to choose, to rule over ourselves. It's what the word responsible means, response, able. We are able to respond. No one can force us to do anything inside this circle. Everything that happens inside this circle is our choice. What that means is we can choose what we think. We can choose the emotions that therefore come from what we think and the actions that therefore follow the emotions and the thoughts that we've been thinking. No one forces us to think, feel, or do anything. 
we have been given the power to rule over ourselves. We're able to respond. What that means is no one can make you mad. No one can make me mad. If we are mad, we're choosing to be mad. Now, that sounds amazing. Do we really have that kind of power? Well, in between what others do that we think is causing us to be angry and what we do is a very important step that happens so quickly that most people don't even notice that it's there. And the step is this, how we choose to think and therefore feel about what this person just did and what this person just said. We can't control what they did and what they said, but how we think about it and therefore how we feel about it and therefore what we do about it is completely within our circle. Our response happens so quick and we feel so automatic that it seems like we don't have this power. But God makes it clear that we do. We can rule ourselves. That's why we can love our enemies. Jesus is not just setting out a shoot for the moon ideal, like let's, let's hope a few of you figure out how to do this. No, that this is something we can do. No one can make us hate them. We choose that. Now, granted, they can make it more or less difficult for us to choose to love them, but no one has the power to get inside of our circle of responsibility and make us hate them. No one can do that. So then why do we let people do this to us all the time? Why do we let what other people do and what other people say rule over us? Why does it dominate so much of our thought and our emotions and keep us up at night so many times? Well, it's because there is more than just this one circle. There is this second circle, another circle that surrounds this inner circle of our responsibility. And in this circle are all the people who impact our life. Now, if the border between these two circles, let's say it was 100 feet tall, steel, and soundproof, then whatever they do and whatever we do, we could all just do our own thing and we wouldn't be bothering each other. We'd kind of be in our own islands, handling our own situations, doing our own life. But that's not the way the border is. The border is invisible. It's real, but it's just a marked border. There is no barrier that keeps us on either side of our fence and them on either side of their fence. So what that means is what they do and what they say impacts me. And so this circle is called the circle of concern. We have more than just a passing interest in what these people do or don't do and what they say, because what they do and what they say or don't do and don't say has an impact on us. It makes our life easier or more difficult, more comfortable or more painful. That's why it's the circle of concern. In this circle are all the people who have a direct impact on your life, and to some extent even those who have an indirect impact on your life. Now, in the circle of responsibility, the primary question as it relates to God is obedience. Are we going to do what God says is right? In this circle, the circle of concern, the primary response question as it relates to God is, are we going to trust God with what's going on with all of the things we're concerned about and all the people that we're concerned about? These are the two relationship circles, the circle of responsibility and the circle of concern. Are we going to trust God with the circle of concern? Are we going to trust God to work in their lives? And are we going to trust God to protect us in the middle of that? Well, to be honest, we struggle with trusting God about as much as we struggle with obeying God. 
And so what we tend to do is we try to move the borders of our responsibility one of two ways, out or in. Let me describe both and what they look like. Sometimes we try to expand the border of our responsibility. Now, just because we try doesn't mean we actually are able to, but we operate under the illusion that we have a bigger border around us and we're responsible for more than we really are. So we try to take responsibility for other people. Why? Why would we do that? Are we looking for extra work, extra concern? No, it's simply a matter of safety. If we could just rule over them and what others do, our life would be much safer. It's like any country with a border. If, if there's no space between them and an enemy country, well, that's a, that's a precarious situation. So they want to create at least a buffer, some kind of neutral zone where, where they can control so that they've got, they've got some safety, they've got some margin in their life. And we're the same way in relationships. So we take the normal impact that we have on other people. You know, they can talk to us, we can talk to them, they can impact us, we can impact them. We can't control, but we take that influence or that ability to impact, and we try to ramp up the power. And we try to extend our influence into an attempt to control them. Now we do this in a bunch of different ways. Sometimes we just go direct and tell them what to do and punish them if they don't. Usually in adult relationships, most people don't take too kind of that, and so most often it's forms of manipulation. We try to make them feel guilty enough to do what we want them to do or feel bad enough to do what we want them to do or, or punish them emotionally until they do what we want them to do. We, we do all kinds of things like this. But it never, never really works very well because the borders are real. Even though they're invisible, they're real. And the minute you try to run someone else's life or they try to run your life, there's problems. Now, if you're a parent of young children, the border of your responsibility is temporarily expanded over your, over your children. And the reason is because when all of us are born, our circle of responsibility is kind of more like a dot. In other words, we all start with a circle of responsibility, but it's really, really small. About all we can do is cry when we need something. Okay, we're ruling over ourselves, but there's not a whole lot of us we can rule over. But as we grow, boy, you, you want our border to be expanded. And that's the role of parenting is to help your children grow over time as their capacity grows to get that border to where it should be. This is why when little ones are two and three, what do they do all the time if you try to do something that they can do? No, 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 I can do it. I can do it. Let me do it. I can do it. I can do it. I mean, all the time. This is a good and healthy thing because they know that I'm supposed to take care of stuff I can do. And they, they have this sense, it makes them feel good that the borders are expanding. Of course, they can't describe this, but this is what's going on in their little hearts is they're created by God to rule over themselves. And so they don't want you doing for them what they can do for themselves. That's a good thing. So it's completely appropriate to be parenting, to take responsibility over a three-year-old. It is not appropriate to do that with a 30-year-old. You need to get to the point where, okay, we're all adults. Now, we have concern and attachment to each other, but you rule over yourself and I'll rule over myself. So the, the expanding border thing is true for parents over their children, but for a limited time. It's a temporary arrangement. But the other way we, we tend to 
move our borders is not only expand them and take, try to take responsibility or control over more than we have power over, but sometimes we, people try to move the border of responsibility in. They try to shrink it. They become irresponsible. Now, they're able to do a whole lot more than they do. They present themselves as weak, as powerless, maybe as victims, in the hopes that someone will see their plight and step up and do for them what they're supposed to do for themselves. Now, there are times in life where people really are victims. You know, if the earthquake hits here, like the hurricanes have hit in other places, people really do need help. They can't do enough for themselves, and so they need other people to do what they can't do. That's appropriate. But those are temporary exceptions. What tends to happen is people present themselves as weaker than they are and less power than they have and in the hope that someone will do the hard work that they don't want to do. So they shrink the border of their own life, and they don't end up doing what they're supposed to do for themselves. They, they look for someone else to do that for them. Now, what tends to happen in difficult relationships sometimes is this. What tends to happen is an expanding border person, someone who's looking for more lives to control, finds a shrinking border person, someone who's looking for someone to do more for them than they want to do for themselves, and they, they form a border treaty. <laughs> you know, they don't ever draw this up formally, but this happens. And here's kind of what, how I would summarize the border treaties. I'll let you run my life if you'll pay for it. <laughs> That's basically the way it goes. Now, the term that, the modern term that's used for this is codependency. I mean, you don't find that term in the Bible, but you will find this idea. It, it's true. What that means is we are separate adults, but our emotions are enmeshed. They're, they're, they're tied up in each other beyond just concern. I mean, where you go, I go. Your emotions go up, mine go up. Your life goes up, my life goes up. Your life goes down, mine goes down. We're dependent on them. That's not the way God created us to be. What this means is we become too emotionally attached to them. Concern, fine. For them, for us, fine. That's what we trust God with. But dependency? In other words, I, I don't have the ability to be okay unless you're okay. That's not, that's not who God made us to be. Now, why do we become so emotionally attached to people? Well, the reason is because every time we venture beyond the borders of our responsibility and try to run someone else's life, or we let someone cross the borders of our responsibility and let them do for us what we should do, every time there's a border incursion, the emotions that are attached to that incursion travel with us. We don't just go and come back. Our emotions first set up camp outside of our border and then eventually build a home beyond the borders of where they belong. And so in time, our emotions become attached to whatever they do and whatever they say. And if they're not behaving well, well, then we got a problem. We, we give up the power that God has given us to rule ourselves and we give it to someone else. We say, you know what? I'm going to let you make me mad whenever you do this thing or say this thing. I'm going to let you completely torpedo my week whenever you ha behave this way. I'm going to let you take away sleep from me. I'm going to let you get money from me. I'm, whatever it goes. On and on it goes. 
And so our emotions become attached. Now, we all tend to do this in varying ways. This can get really, really weird, but even beyond the really weird dependent relationships, we all are too dependent on other people. We, we've moved beyond concern to we need them. And when you need someone, like I said last week, to make yourself okay, you can't love them. You can only love them in ideal circumstances. And most relationships are far from ideal. So what needs to happen is, is we need to get back to the borders that God has established. We need to return to the border of our responsibility and trust God with the borders of concern. The problem is there's no visible fences that mark these borders. But what God has done is God has installed some emotional alarms that go off every time there's a border crossing. And I want to describe three of the predominant emotional alarms that go off. I'm calling these the ABCs because the first one starts with the letter A, then B, then C. Every time these alarms go off, it's a good thing to check to see if you've crossed the border or someone else has crossed your border. And when these alarms go off, I'm going to give you the corresponding action that allows you to return within the circle of your responsibility. So let's begin. The letter A stands for anger. No surprise. Like Cain, this is often the first alarm that goes off whenever there's a border crossing. Either because we've crossed someone else's circle of responsibility and we're angry because it's not working. They're not behaving. They're not doing what they should do. Or because someone we've allowed someone to cross into our circle and we're angry because they're trying to run our life. Now, the anger itself is not the problem. The goal is not to get rid of anger. The anger is the alarm. If you've got an alarm system set up and it goes off and you just take a hammer and bash it thinking you've solved the problem, you misunderstand the purpose of alarms. Anger is an alarm. It's what we do in response to the alarm, what we do in response to anger that becomes the problem. Whenever we get angry, our first response is to punish what we think is the source of anger, to punish them. The word for that is revenge. We exact revenge. We punish in some way. Here's what God says about revenge in Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Why? Well, you need to leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. The word revenge comes from a Greek word that means to show. Kind of open the eyes of someone. And that's the goal behind revenge, to make them see what they're doing wrong. Now, is that a bad desire? No. In fact, that's the exact same desire that God has. That's why God says, hey, get out of the way. That's my job. I do want people to see. I will avenge. I will repay. The problem is that we get in the way of God getting people to see when in anger, we step in and try to get them to see. And that's why God says, hey, would you get out of the way and leave room for me to work on this. Now, the struggle we have with that is it doesn't look to us like God is working very hard on getting them to see. Why? Because they're not seeing. They're not getting it. So there appears to be plenty of room, at least for both of us, to work together on this. God doing whatever he's doing, which I don't understand because I'm not seeing it, and then me kind of making it more clear helping them see what they need to see. It seems like there's lots of room left. Let me explain it this way. Every once in a while, 
I'll do something in the kitchen, I'll make a big mess. And um, my approach to cleaning up stuff is that I'll do that later. Now, I do get to it, but not quickly. My wife's approach is you clean as you make a mess, which I agree is a much better approach. I just, you know, I'm not a fan of that, which may not be a surprise to you. <laughs> so if I make a mess in the kitchen, I'll often say, you know, honey, just leave that for me, because I know she'll come in and start cleaning stuff up. That's just the way she is. And, and I, don't, I made the mess. I don't want her to have to. So I'll just say, honey, I, I'll get to this before, before we go to bed tonight. Leave room for me to clean it up. Every once in a while, I forget. <laughs> so what if I were to get up in the morning and say, oh, you know what? I just noticed I forgot. I've got to run out. I've got an appointment. I've got help. But, you know, just still leave them there. Leave room for me. If that kept happening, wouldn't you think it would be appropriate for her to say, what do you mean leave room? It's not happening. I've got to take care of this myself. And she would jump in and do that. I say that because this is kind of the approach we have with God. You know, if God were doing the job of getting the person in my circle of concern to see the wrong that they're doing, well, then I wouldn't have to get involved. I don't want to do this. But nobody seems to be as interested in this person seeing the wrong they're doing like me. God himself isn't even doing anything about this. So someone's going to have to cross the border and do a commando raid and get them to see something of what's going on here. Now, God says that he is at work, but there's a phrase that's said throughout the page of the Bible that describes the pace at which he works on these things. The phrase is this, God is slow to anger, slow to anger. Now, when it comes to us, we are so grateful. When it comes to them, not as grateful. We don't know what's taking so long. I mean, why not now? Well, the reason is because God wants them to see for themselves what they're doing wrong. Because what, what happens if someone sees for themselves? Then they can make the choice to change. They can repent. Because only they can rule over themselves. Repentance requires freedom. If you do a commando raid and force someone to see something... You're violating the freedom, and therefore, any choice they make, any decision they make to change is not a free one, and therefore, it won't last. It's not a real one. This is why even God himself will not cross the border of our responsibility to make anyone obey him. He insists that it needs to be done in an environment of freedom. So we have to decide, all of us, for ourselves. And for that to occur, justice has to wait, sometimes a very long time. Now, in the end, the time will be up at some point, and every knee will bow before Jesus, we are told. Why? Well, they, at that point, they will see with their own eyes. They will be forced to see, and it will be too late to repent then. The period of freedom will be over, and the choices that we've all made will be locked into eternal futures. The point that is being made in this verse is this. If in anger we start exacting revenge, we're blocking, we're blocking the method that God uses to get people to see what's going on for themselves. So if you feel anger, here's the action to take. The alarm goes off, here's the action. Get out of the way. Now, the anger tends to drive you to get involved and, and to say and do and bring revenge on this person. 
Now, you may need to say some things. It's okay to talk about a border excursion if you can, but be very careful if you're moving from talking about it to mm, pushing your point, you're crossing the border. It's okay to protect yourself if you must. We're going to talk about that in the last message in the series. But don't ramp things up verbally or emotionally in the attempt to get them to see the light of what you're trying to get them to see. Because, well, the truth is this. Our light isn't very strong and it isn't very clear. And usually it only ends up blinding them and they don't end up seeing the power of God's light. So get out of the way. Letter B stands for bitterness. This alarm goes off whenever there's been a a very painful border crossing. Someone in your circle of concern has invaded your circle of responsibility and they've done harm to you. Now, the difference between anger and bitterness primarily is the fuse type. Anger is a fast burner. I mean, someone can say something to you, you're angry. But bitterness, why that burns slow and it burns deep. Takes a lot longer to light, but boy, once it's lit, it is so hard to extinguish. In fact, you can't ever extinguish bitterness once. You extinguish, you come back a month later, oh my goodness, there's a number there again. You got to keep at this. Bitterness occurs after not just one border crossing usually, but after a bunch of border raids that have gone deep into the core of who you are. And there's only one way to free yourself from bitterness. There's only one bucket of water that can extinguish this burn, and that is forgive. That's the only action that will get you back into your circle of responsibility, is you have got to forgive. Now, when it's bitterness, you usually can't just do this once. You have to keep forgiving. Hebrews 12.15 describes the devastating effects that bitterness has in a life. It says this, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It's saying that if you get involved in bitterness, you're going to miss out on God's grace. And that's a tragedy because the grace of God is God's power applied to our brokenness. It's not just forgiveness. It is that. But it's, it's God's mercy to rebuild what our sin has destroyed. And it's the only hope that we have in this life. And it is the most amazing of all things to behold. You know, if you think it's amazing to see the Rockies or a sunset, just watch what God can do in a messed up life if they really yield to him and begin to turn things around. I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning. It's amazing. But in order to see God's grace, we have to travel personally through the terrain of pain. And that's because where does God's grace show up? It only shows up in brokenness. When everything's going well, you won't see God's grace because there's no need for God's grace. So God's grace shows up where there's wrong, where there's hurt, where there's pain. And what happens is as we've traveled this whatever the pain is in the relationship, we come to a why in the road. And we have a choice. Will we forgive or will we be bitter? You know, the one path that leads to bitterness, it, it looks to us like it's a path. But really, it's a rut. I mean, it's, it's actually a, a root, this verse says. You don't 
get moving forward in bitterness, you get stuck in bitterness. You become anchored to the pain. Kind of like a giant oak tree that is rooted to the ground. The roots keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. Your bitterness keeps getting deeper and deeper as you keep rehearsing the pain that has been done to you. And eventually the pain that we feel grows to the point where the trouble that's being caused by the pain we feel is going beyond just us. We're now sharing the pain. We're causing trouble beyond us. And that's because bitterness is a root. It's like a tree. You know, trees, what do trees do? Well, they keep dropping seeds, and new trees grow out of those seeds. We keep dropping seeds of bitterness wherever we are. And the bitterness spreads beyond our circle of responsibility and causes trouble and pain in all kinds of lives. The slow burn just keeps burning and causing problems. I think the saddest part of all in bitterness is that, it, as it says here, it falls short of the grace of God. The idea is you were so close to seeing God's grace, and then you just took the wrong line in the road, and you never got to see it. Now, we're almost to the place where we would have seen the most amazing work of God, but you wouldn't forgive. Now, you, you'd, you'd traveled the path of pain that leads to grace, but when you came to that wine in the road, you, you chose bitterness over forgiveness. Now, it's kind of like driving all the way to the Grand Canyon and then refusing to get out of the car and walk the last 100 feet so you can look over the edge at the splendor that is the Grand Canyon. I mean, what a waste. What a waste of a trip. What a waste of pain. This is what bitterness does. It takes something very painful, and it wastes it. We never get to see God's grace. Now, forgiveness is a big challenge. It is not an easy thing to do. And as I said, you can't just do it once. You've got to keep doing it again and again. So as I was working on developing this message idea, you know, planning the year out a while ago, I realized that I really want to do an entire series just on forgiveness because it's so important. And so on Christmas, the Sundays leading up to Christmas, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to talk about total forgiveness. What forgiveness is, what it isn't, the difference between rebuilding trust and granting forgiveness, how, how to keep forgiving when the pain keeps coming. It's going to be so important. So that's all I'm going to say about forgiveness right now, but, but please don't miss the fact that this is key to staying within the circle of your responsibility. If you refuse to forgive, you destroy your borders, and you let people and what they do to you dominate your life. That leads to the third alarm. The letter C stands for confusion. One of the hallmarks of difficult relationships is continual confusion. I mean, what, what should I say now? How should I respond to this? What, what, what am I supposed to do with that? And there are two reasons for the confusion in difficult relationships. One is appropriate. The other is not. One reason is we don't know what to do. Well, that's legitimate. The other reason for confusion is we don't know how to get them to do what they need to do. We don't know how to get them to behave. Now, you can find an answer to number one, but you will forever be confused about number two. And that is because God has not given you the key or the power to their circle of responsibility. Only they have that. So you're not going to get an answer to number two, just number one. So God wants us to be very clear on number one, question number one, what we, what we should do. And therefore, the action 
correlates to confusion that gets you back within your border is this question of obey. What, God, what do you want me to do next? What do you want me to do now? That's the question that needs to be asked. Not how can I get them to stop doing this or how can I get them to see what they're doing wrong or how can... Good luck with that question. You'll be forever confused about what to do next. But if the question is, God, what do you want me to do? You can get the answer to that one. Now, you have to work at it, but it's doable. Never-ending confusion is a sign usually of border crossings. You're trying to do more than God's going to give you answers for, so you're just continually confused. Here's what God says about his desire to give us answers on what we should do, the question of wisdom. It's not just talking about relationships here, but wisdom in all areas of life. But here's what it says in James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. What we need most in a difficult relationship is wisdom. What do we do? What do we say? We need a word from God on what we should do and what we should say next. And God says, if you need wisdom, just ask me. I love to give you wisdom on how to do life. In fact, the Bible is a whole book full of God's wisdom from God on on how to do life. And if you read it and if you ask questions about what to do, God will give you wisdom. God doesn't shake his head and say, really, you don't know what to do? He doesn't shake his head at our ignorance, but he, he loves to give us wisdom and insight. But when you ask, there's a, there's a key condition. You need not doubt. Well, doubt what? Doubt whether God will give me wisdom or not, whether God's kind of in this game of you know, keeping us somewhat in the dark so we don't know what to do. Is that the doubt? No. God has made it abundantly clear that he really wants us to know what to do. So it's not so much doubt about, is there an answer to this? The, the doubt is whether or not you will do it once God helps you see what it is you need to do. See, what we doubt is not so much whether God has something to say in our situation, but what will happen if we do what God says. The reason is because we are concerned, remember, about much more than we're responsible for. But in order to obey God in circle one, we have to trust him enough in circle two to focus on circle one. If we ask God for his wisdom, but we're really not sure that we can trust him with circle two, well, then we're double-minded. What that means is we have two minds about everything that we are doing. One mind for each circle. One mind asks, well, what's the right thing, God, that you want me to do? But then the second mind comes along and says, what's going to happen, though, if you do that? Is that going to work, or how are they going to respond, or what's going to happen? And pretty soon you find your mind drifting to circle two questions. A double-minded person is unstable in all they do. Why? You never know what they're going to do because you never know which mind is going to win. Circle one or circle two? It says they're like a wave of the sea, tossed this way and that way. What determines the size and shape and direction of a wave? It's not 
determined by the wave. A wave is not an autonomous, self-powering entity. No, waves are determined by forces outside of them. Some of the forces, thousand miles, weather patterns, thousands of miles away. And this is the idea behind someone that's double-minded. The decisions they make, the directions they move, the shape of their emotional well-being is determined by circle two concerns, things that are far beyond their control. If, if we're not asking God for wisdom about what to do on a regular basis in this relationship, it could be because we view this person more as our problem than God's problem. You see, if it's God's problem, then there's really only one question. Well, God, what do you want us to do? You, you got this project. You're working on this person who's causing me problems. But this is your project, not my project. I'm just a worker on scene. What do you want me to do next? I, I don't know your plans. I, I don't know everything you're trying to do. I don't know the timetable. What do you want me to do? If it's God's problem, that's all you need to know. But if it's your problem to solve, whew, that takes a lot more thought. You've got to run all the possible scenarios. Well, what if I do this? And what will they do? And then if I do that, and then I do this, and what's going to happen? And okay, that's not going to work. Well, then what if I do this? And how if I, what if I get this? Well, I don't, you know, you got to get it right. And because people are unpredictable, circle two will get far more thought than circle one. What will happen is your, your mental capacity will be drained by all of the thinking that's required to get it right in circle two because you don't have the power. So if you're going to ramp up and do an excursion to circle two, well, you, don't, you don't have time to think about obedience you got time to figure out, you know, how, how am I going to do this? What are all the scenarios? You'll spend more time on what you have no power to control and far too little time on what you need to do next. Now, let me be clear. If you do want wisdom about what to do next, it is going to require time and effort. It's not just going to pop into your head. You need to ask. You need to look. You need to put effort into it and figure it out. That confusion is okay. But put all of your effort in that not how can I get them to change or behave. You don't have any power over that. That's God's project, not yours. Now, we have a tremendous opportunity coming up for you to get some what do I do in this relationship wisdom. We're calling it just the Courageous Love Conference, and it's coming up this Friday night, Saturday morning. And uh, I've asked uh, Dr. Nathan Lewis to lead us. I've known Nathan before he was a doctor, um, before he was a professor at California Baptist uh, University. Uh, I've known Nathan for about 35 years now, and I have learned so much in this particular area from Nathan about what do we do? How do we respond in this difficult situation? So we've asked him to share with us some of the wisdom out of God's Word that I think will be really helpful to you. In fact, I want to ask everyone just quickly take out your connection card. I want you to see where you can sign up for this. On the back of the connection card, if you look on the left, the third one down says, please sign me up for that first box is the Courageous Love Conference. So if you want to be a part of that, just check that box. Uh, make sure we've got your contact information on the front and then put it in the offering buckets here in just a moment. Now, I want you to notice something about all of these three actions that correspond to these three emotions. All of these three actions are entirely within your control. You can always do these three. No one can ever 
take the power of these three away from you. You have power over these three. You can always get out of the way and leave room for God to do his work in this person's life. You can always forgive and then wait and watch for the Grand Canyon of God's grace to open up and stun you. And you can always obey. God will always show you, so what do I do now? I don't know where this is going. I don't know how it's going to work out. That's circle two concern. I trust you with that. What I want to know is, given this that just happened, this that just was said, what do you want me to do? You can always obey. So as God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7, he says to us, sin is crouching at your door. And we think it's people crouching at our door getting ready to mess with us. Maybe, but the big issue is sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must and you can rule over it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your grace in our lives, your forgiveness, and we, we want to get the chance to see the splendor and beauty of your grace. So we pray that you'd help us to forgive and to set aside revenge and to focus on obedience and what we can do. We pray that you'd give us clarity in our difficult relationships. Help us to know what we need to do next. And then help us trust you with the people that really do have an impact on our lives but we have no control over. Protect us, we pray. And help us, we ask. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.